0: You and I talked way back um, almost a year ago at this point when we ran into each other at the conference. Um, And I blame me mostly that I haven't tried to get you on sooner considering like you had one of the coolest presentations at the conference.
1: Uh, It's just uh, it's been a busy season. That's what I keep saying. And uh, I'm sure it's busy for you, too. So no worries.
0: I mean, it's always busy, right? But I, th- I think that's one of those things like when stuff's uh, something you really want to do, you find the time to do it. So I'm glad to to find the time to get to talk to you face to face. And I look forward to seeing you in uh, some really flashy shoes in a couple of months.
1: Always. I've already got my TC shoes purchased, tried on, not quite broken in, but they will be by then.
0: That's it's madness. I, I, I don't, I, I don't have that sort of high fashion gene to, uh, or, or maybe like lack of shame, whichever it is to like, just go all out on the shoes. Uh, but I respect it.
1: Yeah. That's, I mean, that's the thing we can definitely talk about. It's, uh, it's something of a personal branding exercise. Um, the, it, it, began when, when I was, uh, pretty newly married and my wife was like, so you've got a pair of brown shoes, you get a pair of black shoes and you got a pair of tennis shoes. I'm like, yeah, like, There's so much more you could do with those feet. I mean, I was size 14 flippers. She's like, that's like a canvas. I'm like, no, it's not. You know, it's to be hidden, (laughs) put away, isolated from the world, you know, drab colors, camouflage is ideal. So she finally, after we'd been married, like, I don't know, six, seven years, convinced me to buy this pair of red snakeskin Italian shoes. I felt so conspicuous wearing them. Like, I really felt like I stood out. I wore them to a, a company holiday party, the company I was working for, and everyone raved about them. One guy actually asked if we could trade shoes. I said, "No, those are my shoes." So I have not looked back. I now have um, uh, an absurd number of crazy shoes, and um, and now I feel really comfortable. In fact, I feel like sort of naked without them.
0: I think that is the okay. I have a theory. Like, whenever you meet a guy who has a very specific thing, sometimes it really works for them, and sometimes it's really not serving them. Like, you'll meet a guy who has like a fedora with a feather in it, and you're wondering, like, what's the story behind that? And I figure in most cases, at some point, someone complimented this, and he's like, I'm fedora guy now. And like, I'm going to ride this out forever.
1: That is it. So, so but, Zach, like, what are you? You, you
0: found one that works, right?
1: Yeah. If, if you're not fedora guy and you're not shoe guy, what are you, Zach?
0: I mean, I'm custom t-shirt guy. So I'm actually wearing right now a uh, data punk shirt that I made uh, with yeah. a bunch of my own uh, brands and logos on it. So yeah, I basically, uh, yeah, I almost exclusively wear either clothing that Tableau has given me or clothing that I made myself. So the, yeah, that
1: also yeah. include Salesforce. Plus I got to say, I have some stuff that, uh, you know, people outside of Tableau don't have access to, you know, dev were really big on shirts. So I've got the you know, Tableau Pulse GA shirt that a bunch of us got. Uh, I've got, you know, just tons of dev t-shirts that uh, um, there are a couple I don't have that they, they used to make and don't. One of them just says, I make Tableau. You've probably seen them at TC. I really mm-hmm. want one of those. And then uh, I'm a avid cyclist. I, I realized, I don't remember how I found out about this. Oh yeah. Uh, um, a former colleague was giving away a cycling Jersey. It was Tableau branded and and I said, how the heck did you get that? Oh, yeah, they used to have bike week in Seattle. And so anybody who signed up would get a Tableau jersey. They did it for years and they stopped doing it. So I just asked in this Tableau employee group, does anybody have a Tableau cycling jersey? Several people reached out and I've got these awesome, awesome branded Tableau cycling jerseys. I probably have 10 of them now. And they're those I'm really proud of.
0: I actually have a Tableau Chase item myself. So uh, I I did get uh, at one point I was after the uh, like the Tableau fanny pack because I didn't attend the first conference back. I had some stuff going on. Um, and then uh, my big chase item is at TC 18 in New Orleans. I saw a, uh, a Tableau staffer wearing a Tableau Hawaiian shirt. And I know it was like an internal item. I've never seen it since then. I have a picture of it. it. This is to the point. Okay, look, I've taken this to unhealthy means where I texted since since foolishly Ryan Ate and Mark Benioff both gave me their numbers. After <laughs> <laughs> when, when everyone was spinning up relief really for Hawaii after the fires, I said, hey, look, you have this really cool Hawaiian shirt. Mark loves Hawaii. Like, you know, like spin some of these out and sell them. Like, you know, you can, people will pay like well above face value for these, you know, to help right. support the the cause and everything. I mean, yeah, it was a little self-serving because I want one of those, but also, you know, it was a good cause. But yeah, I think, I think it's fun that everyone has like their sort of chase items that they see that they're looking for. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I think that was Kent Martin, the, uh, maps PM who had the custom Hawaiian shirt, if I recall correctly.
0: Oh, it's that custom. Oh my gosh. I remember Kent. Yeah, that's back in the day. I think it, I
1: think it was that one. Well, I, I definitely would um happily pay for one of your custom tableau t-shirts.
0: We, we so, can make uh, we can make something happen. we'll We'll sort it I out. That.
1: I wore you may have seen I wore last year the uh I, I love the meatball shirt that was made for me. uh custom that's that's one I'm very uh very proud of. Uh, and and Chris pulled those off. I mean, like last minute. He was leaving from Australia to fly over to Vegas. And he's like, if you can confirm your sizes right now, I'll make them. And so he made them for the, the folks in the devs on stage who were doing uh the uh shared dimensions demo. Super cool.
0: That's fantastic. You um okay, so you are in the business of some very high profile demos. Like, how have you um I mean, you obviously haven't been at Tableau your entire career. Have you always been in such forward-facing roles or is this something you just sort of found yourself in more recently?
1: Well, I've always been a talker <laughs> um, and I've been doing software for a long time. I started writing code when I was a little kid. My dad bought a computer that plugged into the TV. So I've been fiddling with code since I was six years old. There were these books that came with it. And and so then when you, once you built something, you wanted to show it off. And you know the demo audience at the time was my mom and siblings and my dad, and uh, I, in fact, I tell this story often how I, I ran down to my dad's office. I was probably 10 years old. I was learning to write C code. And I was like, dad, dad, I wrote this program to solve my geometry homework. You want to check it out? And he goes, okay. And it was, a that's how old I am. Five and a quarter inch floppy disk, you know. So he puts it in his like 286 and clicks the thing. Anybody under a certain age, by the way, will have no idea what I'm talking about. But okay, no idea. trust me. It was like a thumb drive for, you know, old people. And, and so that you put this thing in and it you know, runs the program and it comes up and it goes, uh, it was something like, what shape do you want to solve for? It was like, so he goes, okay, the, the area of a rectangle. Well, you need X and Y, so it prompts for enter X and he en- enters some number. And I'm standing there very proud because going to enter Y and it's going to return the result, right? Like this is great. And for, for Y, he typed George mm. and he hit enter and it failed, crashed and, you know, didn't know what to do, couldn't parse, not an integer, right? And I was like, Dad, dad, no one would ever type George when prompted for a number. And he said, Matthew, users are stupid. And he handed me my floppy disk and taught me my first uh, user experience lesson. So I've been doing demos for a long time. Um funny enough, I didn't I didn't really know that that talking about software was a special skill. I my my career was all software engineering uh and And mostly behind the scenes, I would run customer focus groups and so on, but didn't realize that was like a special thing until um, I met a friend of my wife's randomly enough. um, And he was like, hey, I think you'd be a really good sales engineer. And I was like, oh, sales isn't for me. I'm not a sales guy. No. What's a sales engineer? He goes, well, you know, you work with salespeople and and the way he described it sounded like like you were tech support for salespeople. I'm like, that sounds like a terrible, terrible job. So I applied for it anyway and interviewed and found out that, no, 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 you, you build software demos and then you present them to people. And I was like, so then you have to turn around to like do all the work to implement the actual code. Like, no, no, no. Actual software engineers do the real work. I'm like, this job sounds like heaven because instead of having to worry about releases and quality assurance, I could just write a, you know, a demo that barely worked you know, limp through a 30 minute presentation, the customer goes, great, I'll buy. And then I hand it to some actual software engineers to implement it. This is amazing. So I I started doing that in early 2008 and haven't looked back. Um, I've said for a long time that pre-sales is where it's at. Those the, the customer facing stuff is just so much fun. I don't know. I, just, I love that. I love that experience when you see like a customer's eyes light up, like they get what you're showing. I just, I, I, that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I could talk about this a long time. This is the thing I like.
0: I, I understand that. Uh, I actually love demoing for clients as part of my job too. It's uh, it's really fun when someone is unfamiliar with some concepts or you know a better way to do something than they do and you can introduce them, especially when you're sort of bringing them along in the journey and like taking them to a new place that they weren't expecting to go and you can sort of feed off of their enthusiasm. One of the challenges of, of tech demos, obviously is that many times you feel like you're operating with a net, particularly if, you know, in my case, I might be building something live sometimes. Um, I remember last year you were demoing uh, some really cool new AR capabilities. And you're uh, you you know, you're talking about how, imagine if Hans Rosling had had this at the time when he was doing his uh, famous TED talk. Um, oh, yeah. What's it like when you're not only demoing something, but demoing something that you know is going to, you know, turn a lot of heads and get a lot of eyes on it? Like, do you do you do you fear that moment of you know oh i clicked the wrong thing oh i made the wrong motion or is it rehearsal or is it just confidence like how how do you do it
1: well i was asked you know do you get nervous before you speak before i go on stage and i'm you know i've
0: somehow become
1: part of the public speaking rotation here at tableau so i get the chance to do a bunch of keynotes which i love I don't think it's nerves anymore. It's it's adrenaline. Like I get really excited. I can barely sleep the night before. Francois talks about, um Francois, our former chief product officer, my dear friend and mentor talks about how, you know, he can't sleep like the whole week before TC because of that excitement. I totally get that. Uh You you do absolutely have to rehearse because it's a little bit like being a musician. I'm a, you know, hack guitarist. I have a degree in music and always wanted to be a pro musician. Uh, then found out I don't have the, talent, good looks, connections you know, or luck to be successful. So I, I do soccer instead. And and the thing about that is, when when you've trained your hands enough and rehearsed enough that your hands will just play the song automatically, you can focus on the delivery way better because then your, your hands can be automatic. You can focus on engaging with the audience. And actually that being on stage and performing very similar to delivering a great demo or a great talk, It's it's reading the room and adjusting the flow dynamically so that everybody's having just the, the best time possible. That's a key part of it. Uh, I would say for for TC, there's a whole nother level. Uh, I, I can give you a little of the behind the scenes of what we go into for devs on stage. Uh, I'm, uh, this will be my third year running it. And it's, first of all, as a former SE, I am paranoid to death of anything going wrong. So there are safety nets on safety nets on safety nets. The first year I did this, the the tech team that supports the keynote said, you actually want to have a Tableau server running backstage? Yeah, yeah, I want to have a Tableau. Why? said, look, if the Wi-Fi goes, they said the Wi-Fi is not going to go down. You just never know. And I want to make sure that I'm not sending some poor software engineer whose largest audience to date has been their scrum team of eight to 10 people out on stage in front of thousands the Wi-Fi goes down and they're sitting there you know, on stage with the mouse going, uh, so just imagine, <laughs> right? Oh my gosh. So we have uh, redundancy. We have backup speakers. We have backup laptops for everything. We have backup networks, backup sites. Everything is redundant all the way through the stack. And we practice failovers too. Um, I'm proud to say that in the last two TC, there was only one failover. It was so fast that almost nobody caught it there was something that had gotten signed out in the time while one of the previous demos was happening. The demo went to click on it. I'm backstage and I saw the error start to show and like shouted at the tech team, cut, cut, cut. And they switched over to the backup and it was like nothing happened. And I'll bet you didn't see it, did you?
0: No, I had no idea.
1: But you know who did see it? Francois. I <laughs> I looked up from like the demo world backstage, you know, rows and rows of laptops all lined up and all this tech, you know, guys in the black with the headsets running around, you know, backstage is a zoo. It's so cool. And I look up from my spot and there's Francois and he's just off the side off stage where you can't see him, but he's kind of watching the stage and looking at me and he looks over and he goes,
0: <laughs>
1: so close to perfect. But yeah, we we rehearsed the heck out of those. Uh, and, and in fact, yeah, the most, I would say that, The most intense and stressful demo I've ever done was Gartner BI Bake Off last year in Orlando. That was the first time we showed gestures publicly. And uh, and it's a 20 minute scripted demo. It's just ridiculously intense. And you're not, like there are customers I demo to where like, I've been doing this a long time. These are friends at this point. You know, those are soft, easy. I don't go in with a like, second laptop in case something goes wrong. You know, like when you present to an audience of five, you're in person, that's one thing. When you're going to present to 4,500 chief data analytics officers, if you screw up, you know, I might as well just hand in my badge and go, sorry, Francois, it's been a good run, you know? And uh, I had rehearsed the heck out of that. And we had actually a guy, John Demby, who's a legendary demoer himself sitting in the audience with another laptop with all the same stuff on it. And and he was front row. If my laptop had caught fire, I could have picked it up, thrown it in a bin, grabbed the other one, and continued my demo without missing a beat. And if I, you know, passed out, fallen over, they could have dragged my corpse off stage and Demby could have sat down and delivered my demo without missing demo without missing a beat. So yeah, we were we were ready for that one. But I mean there, I had rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed to the point where and I got to credit Demby for this lesson, I started making more mistakes. And I started to panic because the demo was the next morning and I was making mistakes, just either clicking on the wrong thing or forgetting part of my talk track or whatever. And John said something that was really good. He said, look, you are over-rehearsed. You have done this so much. It's deep in your psyche. You actually just need to stop and go do anything else, right? Go get a meal, go for a walk, and your brain is going to kind of like rehydrate it. And when you sit down tomorrow, it's going to be perfect. And when I sat down, it was just there. It was all there from the first when Francois said later, we would won basically after the first minute um, because we, yeah, because it was, it was well-rehearsed. Yeah. There's, I, I think a lot about this. Um, in fact, I'm working in my spare time here on a public speaking course internally and, and I hope to get to share some of those things that I've learned from, from folks like Demby and Francois about how to craft a great story, how to craft a great keynote, and how to build a great demo.
0: I think, uh, I think storytelling is a really important part of that. I think a lot of people don't consider about a technical demo because they're thinking it's all about um, capabilities of the software, but really it's about use case and it's about relating your audience and creating a connection to understand this is why you should care about it. This is why you should be excited. Um, yeah, and uh, the stakes couldn't be higher um, in terms professionally, not just for you, but for the company when you're doing these high-profile demos because it's the first impression people are getting of you know your new technologies. I mean... It's uh, I, I in the in the most favorable way. I'm, I'm comparing gestures to like Xbox Connect, which was a very risky proposition. Oh, where, connect. you're, you know, you're creating an augmented reality experience between a person and their television set. And uh, yeah, it's uh, there. There's so much that can go wrong with that between the detection, uh, any any other thing that could go wrong with any other demo. But I don't know. It was really exciting. I just like the implication that globes are a uh, a uh, map type, which uh, yeah. I like. But uh,
1: I love gestures. We could we could definitely go there. Um, I'll say from a demo perspective, uh, a, a thing I have learned, and I brought I bring from the songwriting world, is that there's there's a certain like. Flow to a great song, at least a good pop song. You know, let's say Bohemian Rhapsody is an outlier, right? But, but for most great pop songs, there's kind of an ebb and a flow, and and there's a place where there's the bridge, and there's verse one, verse two, and the chorus, and there's this kind of you want to have something that ties it all together. I feel like most great demos should have kind of three beats, kind of ba ba ba, good, better, best, bronze, silver, gold. We like things in the threes, and so if you watch, most of my demos have like a ooh. Oh, wow. And that demo was structured to have exactly that. So the final wow was not the globe. It was that the globe spins. And, and that was all real by the way, which is what makes that click terrifying because it's real code. Um, there, were, there were a couple of things that sort of went wrong that I had to, I had to catch if you want some more behind the scenes. Um, gestures of course depends on recognizing my gestures. That's great in an environment like this where I've got this nice dark blue background. And so if I pull up gestures right now, it would recognize everything I do. On the TC stage with those bright lights with the Jumbotron behind me, we actually had to have the tech team rotate the desk, the demo desk slightly, because what was happening is the cameras, the camera for gestures was picking up another me behind me on the Jumbotron. And so it was like, he's got four hands. No, no, no. So we had to like adjust the desk and there was always some risk that uh, that the lighting in on the moment might not work and it might not recognize my hands. So I worked with the dev team and I said, hey, what if we have a uh, a secondary pinch? And if I can trigger a pinch by pressing the shift key, and then that will, you know, because you're just pointing and pinching. There's actually, by the way, a bunch of other gestures that it, gesture types that it supports that we hope to show later. Um, spoiler alert. So, you know, pointing, right, is what I was doing as I was in, um, kind of mousing over, if you will. And then pinching is how I move stuff around. And, and sometimes I would go for the pinch on the globe when we were rehearsing in the auditorium, it wouldn't see the pinch. We added this shift. You hold down the shift key and it toggles from pointing to pinching. And so when I went to do the first spin, sure enough, it didn't pick it up, but I was ready. And I just hit shift and spun it like this. Um, side note, what that means is, you can actually pinch with one finger, which means you can interact with gestures using just your middle finger, which makes for a very funny <laughs> Easter egg demo. Um, just leave that for you. When, when this finally gets closer to a pilot, I'm sure somebody will make a video.
0: <laughs> it, it's going to sure. happen. Like it's uh, you, you've guaranteed it at this point. Like congratulations, you've lo- you've locked <laughs> that. in. You see, that was going to be an Easter egg, and now it's just going to be a feature.
1: Now it's just a feature. What's cool about that, though, is we stumbled on an accessibility thing in the process, right? Because there are. people have different shaped hands lighting will differ uh and you know someone might be missing a finger say and so like the that gives you actually an accessibility benefit it was kind of one of those fun serendipitous product discoveries born out of necessity that adds value to the product
0: absolutely i think hand tracking is such a cool feature and you're you're dead on with accessibility so many people might have yeah you know if you've have I had a, a professor in college who uh, had phallicide fingers. His fingers uh, were missing the ends of his digits, so that could have wow. been an accessibility issue for him. I remember um, I have uh, the Oculus Quest, the first uh, the first VR headset that was totally wireless and didn't require like you know room uh, setup. It was basically scans the room, and once they added a hand functionality to it, so it actually tracks your hand. It was a real transformational uh, feature because. While the uh, native grips simulated many hand functions, there's nothing that really replaces actually using your hands um, and having to learn how to create fake hands on screen to interact with.
1: Yeah, I learned a lot through that project too. I had had assumed that what people would want most is what we showed in the keynote, which is this incremental build-out. Because I can imagine, for example, if I'm trying to convince someone of something about, let's say, tables in the East, just to pick something random, right? You know, our discounting strategy is wrong for tables in the East. I would want to start by going, all right, this is our sales. And everyone goes, yeah, okay, I get that. That looks like our sales. I've seen that kind of graph before. Well, this is our sales split by region, right? Okay, interesting. Notice what's going on here in the East. This is our sales split by region and category. Oh my gosh, tables in the East, right? And I figured that that is what people would prefer rather than a complex viz that I then have to explain. And I would just, just roughly 50% of the customers who have used gestures in the research labs that we've run have said, no, no, no. I want to set up the full viz ahead of time and then just walk people through it. And I find that interesting. I, that, it, that's one of the cool examples of like research teaching you something that is maybe different than your intuition would suggest. So um, what that means is that the the plan for gestures is you'll have these things called scenes. The scene is kind of like a slide in Google Slides or PowerPoint. And so the scene is your configuration of charts. And it's either, okay, there's going to be a bar here and a map here, or there's a globe here and a line chart here. And they can either be pre-built, So when you switch to the next scene, it's all ready, or you switch to the scene and like I did, it's blank and you build it out and either way will work.
0: I imagine like chart density on the page when you're using something like gestures is going to be a bit different than if you're building a conventional dashboard where you might conventionally fit, I don't know, four charts and bands. You might be using less space because you're going to be more limited. Your fingers are going to be larger on screen than many bars or points that you might interact with. Um, Like from your experience, when you've been doing like builds and that sort of thing, how many charts do you typically build or what kind?
1: I think uh, it, it, you're very right. Uh, we've all seen people who assume that there's a, a linear correlation between the number of charts on a dashboard and the insights you'll get from it, right? And there's, I think it really is that inverted U curve. You know, it's it's one of these like, yes, more insight up to about three or four charts. And when you're doing gestures or any of these kind of augmented presentations, your face is one of the screens basically, right? It's actually one of those things that we ended up in by accident ended up in the keynote is that line, the message and the messenger together. It was in one of the rehearsals. I don't know who said it. Maybe it was me. And we were like, Oh, that's it. That's going in the keynote. But that's, that's kind of it. When you think of like a newscaster, it was kind of the metaphor, you know, the newscaster's head is here and here's like, you know, suspect be- sought in robbery of grocery store. And like, I'm talking, so I'm, I'm occupying like 60%. And then the, the image is, is a smaller percentage so you've got to leave that space for, your, for the face. So I think two or three is enough. And also, of course, you don't really have a tooltip type concept in that world. So the tooltip is actually can be one of the zones. You may recall from the demo at TC that when I pointed at a mark, I get detail about the mark over here. So you lose a, a zone, so to speak, if you want that kind of supporting information. So really two charts is about right. And I think that's that's basically the same as if you were designing a slide for a presentation like how many charges is enough two is probably the max and then if you want more you go to the next scene.
0: That makes a lot of sense. The kind of storytelling you're going to be telling in this method is different from a, say, conventional business business dashboard or slides or, or many other methods. And it's a lot more like uh, my kids could read themselves bedtime stories, but they're getting more out of the story when I'm guiding them through it. They get more additional context and that sort of thing. So I can see how this brings a lot of that value to it. I also think it's really uh, cool about gestures that um, there's, competing products like ThoughtSpot, which is different from gestures but it's the idea is enablement allowing more novices to step in and do the data exploration one of the great things about gestures is not only is the storyteller part of the process but when you're done you actually have something that if you want a deeper and further analysis put in a tableau workbook and give it to your analysts and say okay make this a permanent thing or we'd like to know more about this go research that so it's a jumping off point that allows you to go deeper into stuff uh, and yeah, it allows uh, it allows people with different levels of experience to create and tell the story, assuming they they know the their parameters around operating gestures correctly.
1: Yeah, the storytelling part is maybe sometimes under underrepresented in how we think about the work that we do. Uh, I I tell a story about when I joined Tableau. There was a project I was given, which was you know, go figure out what we should do about a certain thing. I probably shouldn't go into detail as to what that was, but. Uh, hey, go figure out what our strategy should be for this thing. Well, I came from you know years of consulting and spending time with a lot of our biggest customers, so I, I kind of knew what we should do heuristically. That happens a lot. You kind of have a gut sense of what you should do. But let's go see what the data says. So I went and dug through a whole bunch of data about our customer behavior, actual customer behavior. I was pleased to find that it confirmed my suspicions, and I built this one visit, this scatter plot. I wish I could show it to you, but it's full of customer names. I can't. And and it's this one scatter plot. I used the clustering feature. It's a log-log scale, and it shows uh, the relationship between number of users and some other behavior. So each dot, each mark represents a customer, and they were labeled. And and then the uh, size was, I think, uh, I don't know, number of, number of users they had. And then one axis was like sort of number of active users. The other was usage of this particular feature. And what you saw was there was this, wide range, it was not a niche, it was a wide range, but everybody uses this feature and some people use it a ton, like can't live without it. And and so I built this one scatter plot that basically proved we should build this one thing. It's a no brainer, customers need it. And then I did all the other work of like getting customer anecdotes, um, side note, I learned from Francois that basically every airtight product strategy, and I'm going to write a blog series about this one of these days, should have the market perspective, the competitive perspective, the strategic perspective, quantitative customer data, qualitative customer evidence, and anecdotes. You got those, then you're ready for every every type of critic in the room who goes, well, do we have any big customers? Yes. And um, yeah, but how many? Oh, right here, you'll see on page three. That way you're ready for every objection. But I digress. So uh, I write this doc that has this kind of airtight product strategy. It took me five months or so of lobbying to actually convince leadership to do this thing. And for very good reasons. It was a big investment. And there's risk about this. But, you know, I don't, I don't fault them for asking a lot of tough questions and for it taking time. But what I found was my work to do that analysis was like a very small percentage of the effort to convince leadership of what we needed to do. The work of telling the story of what that analysis meant and relating the stories behind that data, that was all the work. The first time I presented this to leadership, um, our CEO at the time, you can Google, I won't mention, um, he works elsewhere. And I presented this and he was like, no, I don't think we should do this. And I'm like, man, this is such a no brainer. Why are we, you know, I was frustrated. And, um, and Francois actually was the one who gave me some advice. And said, why don't you go to each executive who was in that meeting and ask him to share their objections, walk them through your data again, walk them through your rationale, tell your customer stories. And so I did. And gosh, it took ages, you know, getting time with execs and pitching this one, explaining and answering objections. And then we got them all together in a room again a few months later and I gave basically the same pitch and they were like approved, funded. So I used to think, right, that it was like 80% getting the data in the right shape, 20% doing the visual analysis and that's the work of an analyst. I don't think so. (laughs) I think it's like, Get the data in the right shape is like I don't know, 30%, then 10% is the analysis, and the whole rest is telling the story and sharing what you've learned. That's how you change hearts and minds. And ultimately it's hearts and minds who change the world. So I've I've kind of changed a little bit in my perspective on, on the, the role of data storytelling. It's so much more important than we give it credit for. And things like gestures really underscore like how powerful that can be.
0: I think that's a great example, like a practical, functional, you know, for, for your particular role. Um, I know for in my case, understanding who your audience is and what their concerns are, are the driving force behind whatever I end up making. And if you don't understand what the concerns are, the decisions that are that need to be made, uh, the things that concern them you're going to tell the wrong story. Like you might make a great story, but it's not the story they wanted to hear or needed to hear. And many times people will tell you the kind of story they want and they they don't even understand the, what they're asking for. Uh, if you just take take feedback on face value. Um, there, there are many people that will read a requirements document perfectly, construct it to the letter, and then find they've made something that no one uses and be absolutely baffled why. And that's sort of and that's part 100%. of the professional maturity level, right? Like you've you've learned, I shouldn't take this at face value. I need to ask further questions. I need to really get in the heads of what's happening here.
1: Yeah, I related this story recently on Facebook, I'm sorry, on LinkedIn about uh, uh, dynamic parameters. Um, One of my first clients, a French company said, hey, we have a meeting with uh, an executive from Tableau and we really wanna tell him about what we need them to build in the product. Can you join that meeting? to help explain to them, since you know Tableau and you're know know, our, you know, you our Tableau consultant, can you uh, sit with us in this meeting and kind of represent us and make sure our voice is heard? I said, who are we meeting with? Like oh, a guy named Francois. I said, oh no, I know Francois. Um, and this was re- very early days. I'm gonna say this is 2013 or 14. So I go to this meeting and the customer really wanted dynamic parameters. And so they're explaining what they need and I'm oh, Matthew, tell them, tell them, tell them about the dynamic parameters. I'm like, I think he knows. I think he knows. So, oh yeah, they need dynamic parameters. And Francois heard all this and then said, okay. So what I hear you saying is you often have multiple data sources and what you're trying to do is have one filter control that manipulates several of them at the same time. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what we need. And parameters are the only way to do that. He goes, okay. Well, what if we gave you the ability to link data sources so that changing a filter in one would modify the filters in the other? And like, oh yeah, that's yeah, that's exactly it. He goes well, you'll be delighted to know that we're shipping that in the next release. <laughs> and they're like, yay! And they didn't need dynamic parameters anymore, did they? And that's a great example of what a product leader does is they hear what people are asking for and they ship the thing that really meets their needs. And there's a there's a flip side to this. I, I think I see sometimes customers will go, we need this. And product leaders will go, no, you don't. You need that. And then customers go, no, we don't actually know. No, we understand. We know what that is. We don't need that. Like, that's fancy. I get why you'd want to build that. But actually, we need this. It's boring. It's pedestrian. But it would really make our lives easier. And then PMs are like, yeah, but what if we put AI in it? And they're like, (laughs) sure. But actually, we just, in a lot of data work, like, doesn't need rocket science. A lot of data work is just, can you make it do this thing? Can you pivot it this way? Give me a button that does that. So... You know, I I feel like we have to have a great respect for customer feedback. It's really important. I never want to say, you know, although my dad did teach me that sometimes users are stupid, right? Like customers are smart. They are living in the weeds. They're using these products all day, every day. We need to take their feedback very seriously. And if we disregard it, there's got to be a really darn good reason. Like in Francois' example where he was like, okay, sure, you know the features we have today, You can't even imagine the features you don't have today. So you're asking us to change a feature we have today to try to solve something. In a way, it's kind of a hack. We can give you a new feature you don't have today that solves all that way more holistically, way more scalably, right? But you got to do that very carefully. It's what makes this job hard.
0: I think think, uh, there's a really delicate balance there, right? Like understanding the needs and desires of your customers, because like you said, they can... Many times they can only imagine based on what they already know. Uh, and that's why one of the reasons when I receive customer requirements, many times someone says, I want a pie chart. And what they means it, mean is I need to represent parts to a whole. They don't understand there's other options to that. Um, yes. What you're describing makes me think of... a. Uh, the TV show Halt and Catch Fire was which was the like sort of fictitious version of the computer revolution in the 80s and 90s. And um, one of the characters on the show says computers aren't the thing. They're the thing that gets us to the thing. And I think many times with product releases, it may not be immediately evident where this takes you or what the intent behind this thing is. And I think that's one of the great things about having not only great engineers internally and great product managers, but being able to tap into a community of people that are really quirky and hacky to find out like, okay, we're going to put some toys on the table and see what comes out of this. Because many times, you know, with extensions and things like that, you've all of a sudden got Tristan creating all sorts of new chart types that are that can integrate fairly natively into the product. And you're like, holy cow, like might not have seen that coming. So by, by putting uh, the right toys out there and seeing what happens with them you sometimes uh, strike gold
1: yeah oh I mean there's so much that's in the product today that we've learned from customers by watching how they use the product and the add-ons and and scripts and hacks and creative workarounds that they've found yeah I think the Senkey Viz extension is a great example like it's so cool I gotta I gotta make sure I call out all the right people. So Olivier Catherine, I think, was the first to ever blog about doing a Sankey in Tableau. And there have been a few others, the Fleurlish Twins, and there's a few others I'm forgetting who've really shown us like easier and easier me- mechanisms for building a Sankey. But at the end of the day, if this has just become a visualization type that the world is used to, it should be a native part of the product, and it should be way easier. Now, I love the fact that Tableau lets you do anything. That's great. But if we find that people are doing the same things over and over again can we make those things a lot easier and the sankey is such a great example of that and again there are people who quibble that it's not a great viz type or that it's misused that's fine the fact is they're popular they do have analytical value our customers build them and the effort to build one without the viz extension is higher much higher than it should be so let's close that gap and make it an easy drag and drop that's that's an obvious one you know and there's probably a lot more of those that we can do
0: I'll tell you one that Tableau does not currently do, that a competitor does do, that if you put this chart on the page, clients always immediately approve it, even if it's not the best chart type.
1: We have have competitors? Possibly. Possibly.
0: And that is a gauge chart. I personally don't love them. Many executives do love them.
1: need a moment here. (laughs) We just had this conversation internally. Um, Tell me why you love gauges, Zach.
0: I love gauges because clients approve them. No, I, I'm, I, I, I joke, but it, let me let me give you another example. I I saw one time um, a dashboard template being deployed um, by an organization, and they were using uh, donut charts uh, to represent a percent change over time. And my initial reaction was visceral because I'm like, it could be greater than hundred percent. It could be a negative number. Why would you use this chart for that? And in yes. many ways. That's my feeling about gauge charts, too, because you can bury the needle by going way beyond or you can go the opposite direction. Much like in my car, my speedometer goes, it says 140, which I drive a 10 year old Ford plug in hybrid. It's not hitting that, but it's it's also never hitting 300 miles an hour. I mean, I guess it like I I saw the Fast and Furious movie where they go to space. It could happen, but it's also also never getting a negative mile per hour like that. Yeah, going Backwards too fast. But I. I think gauges are a I think because it is a tangible real world representation of moving towards a goal. I mean, in my world, I would probably choose a Gantt line and a bar. And are you under it? Are you below it? Like, where are we heading towards this? And I think that's very functional. But I think because I am sort of a data native and many people are much less data fluent. This is something that's comforting because it looks like something they're familiar with.
1: Fascinating. Uh, we, you know, Stephen Few would argue the bullet graph is a far superior way of representing that information. Uh, and I, I actually have grown to love donut charts a little bit, and only, like you said, in certain cases where the value can't go above one hundred percent and can't go negative. Um, I don't hate donuts as much as I sort of used to, and I totally grok that. Like we're better at comparing one-dimensional differences in distance than two-dimensional. Like I totally get that. Um, Gages might be a hill. I'm not quite ready to cross. I actually just recently argued stridently against a proposal for gauges. So I'm on record <laughs> recently saying I think they're... Um, but, but it is true that there's, the, there's like the ideal world and there's meeting people where they are. And uh, I, I, I recognize that a, a visualization people actually use that they can understand and can drive toward a, some kind of organizational performance is far superior to a beautiful or perfectly built dashboard that no one uses. You know, if you're not getting value out of the data, it's all in service of some kind of a goal. So I do I do get that. Yeah, I don't know if gauges are what I'm ready for. And, and you know what the cool thing about Viz Extensions is, Zach? If you want to make a gauge that's native to Tableau, you knock yourself out. Will I install it in my Tableau environment anytime soon? Don't know, but you, you do you.
0: I really don't want to.
1: <laughs> I get it. I get it. But hey, look, the cool thing is, if you want to make a killer gauge skew and all that, go for it.
0: I'm going to leave the curvy crap to some Fleurages or maybe yeah. like Sam Parsons or somebody. That's that's not my that's not my lane. Like, I, I recognize the stuff I'm good at. And uh, frankly, I, I my my whole methodology between the stuff you see me make, not the stuff I make at work is. I've got a whole life situation going on. You know, there's dyslexic children and a full-time job. If I need projects that are about three hours, so from concept to to final execution, what can I find that both interests me and I think will interest someone else in about three hours? And out of that, building a gauge, it's just not worth it. I mean, I did work with cj to build my my ted danson birthday clock which is a rotating thing which was kind of fun okay. um so mostly saw, to troll um, kevin fleurlage because he wouldn't stop <laughs> tweeting about it but you know that's always good yeah some, sometimes schadenfreude drives me like spoiling his fun announcing what ted danson's birthday is like that's worth it
1: yeah always that's always worth it um shout out to uh matthias Hosens who used to work with me at bizstory he built this visualization of the career of one of the most famous Belgian cyclocross, cyclocross racers, Sven Ness. It's a gorgeous viz uh, built, and it looks like rings of a tree. And, and so as a result, and each, each notch around for each year is a race he was in and whether he won or not. And it really compellingly shows how dominant Sven was throughout his career. And it also works because earlier in his career, he was in fewer races, so it just worked in that case. It really is functionally like a multi-layered gauge, and yet totally works. So there are definitely places for that kind of like a rotary view. Um, you probably won't see me building one in my dashboards anytime soon.
0: I I'm I'm with you. I I. As much as a uh, coworker, Simon Beaumont, likes to troll me about uh, pie charts and circles, I, I many times find them inefficient use of space. But if that's what a client totally understands, I would love to make one for them because that's that's my goal at the end of the day. Do they understand this and will it drive them forward? I'm going to push them towards like a more viable option, but like you got to sometimes work where your client is. Let me ask you this. Like what what's what else can you tease? Like you've you've dropped some nuggets along the way. Like I see, I see there's lots you're holding back, which I understand. Like, but what, what are you most excited to talk about right now that you can talk about? Like oh, what's man. really, uh, you know, getting you going?
1: Well, I just came from a conversation about a thing. I absolutely cannot talk about, but it's super cool. So, sorry, I got to leave you with that uh, unsatisfied uh, interest there. That'll that'll come later. That's hopefully a TC item very likely to be a TC item. We're we're in the throes, of course, of getting the keynote put together. I'm getting devs on stage. So you may have to hold your breath a little bit longer on some of these things. Uh, I think that, well, so I'll take a little bit of a step back. It feels like we're going through a bit of a inflection moment in the analytics world. You know, if you look at our sales slides, they'll say things like the first chapter of analytics was traditional reporting. The second chapter was self-service. The third chapter is AI enabled, et cetera. I, I I very much believe that AI will be transformative. I don't know if any of us quite yet know to what extent and how, uh, but I, I have this hunch. It goes back to a actually a position paper I wrote here, which is that the, the whole thing that we do that I get excited about is all in service of something else that actually we don't get involved in. By which I mean driving the performance of organizations and teams and individuals. And that means something very, very different. One company to another, one team to another, one individual to another. But we have this belief that all of that transformation requires data and specifically seeing and understanding it and taking some kind of action. So if like the kind of transformation that an organization needs has, like let's just say, 10 steps, data and analytics are... A key part of that but they're definitely not the whole journey right because otherwise you'd build the dashboard and you're like I'm done we're transformed so I would often say in talks I'll be like do any of you get bonused based on how many dashboards you look at you know I don't think so I don't think anybody does. So I'm excited about a future where whether you call it AI or automation or intelligence or smarts or whatever where someone who's in in a context where they want to drive some kind of performance, can go from question to answer and insight to action as fast as possible at the speed of thought. So in this uh, position paper, we gave this hypothetical scenario. Uh, you know, I've, I'm actually kind of a Jabra guy myself, but my wife has AirPods. Uh, a lot of people are familiar with the AirPods, and they have this chip in them that's really smart, pretty powerful, but it's nowhere near as powerful as like the M3 Max, right? Because that thing requires you know a whole power supply and whatnot. But they still have a little chip and it's pretty powerful and you can tap on it and go you know blah 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 siri this 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 and it'll do some limited things whereas like the power of my laptop is tremendous by comparison well what will it be like for any business person analyst, data all of us are data people when all the power of my laptop is just right here in my airpod and i can basically just go is my discounting strategy working um, which of my call center agents should I promote? Which ones should I fire? You know, uh, like what's going on with our partner community and who are the partners I should invest more in, right? Th- those kind of really difficult questions, which probably have data-driven or data-informed answers. I want to get people to the point where they can answer those questions and take those actions. What that means practically, of course, is locating the right data, cleaning, understanding, modeling, querying, visualizing, presenting, integrating, acting. It's so much that goes into that. And that feels like a pipe dream, but that's basically the future we're we're teasing toward as, as Tableau and as Salesforce is this world where, of course, Salesforce takes largely a business lens, but anybody should be able to go, I have a question, the answer to which will change some kind of action on my behalf that'll drive some kind of meaningful performance, that they can go from that question to that performance just like that. That's what we're getting at. All this is in service of that.
0: That sounds fantastic. I don't think I can follow that up. I think that's the perfect place for us to to wrap this up today. Uh, I look forward to seeing where things are heading. Uh, I, I love how how data is evolving. I love how uh, our interactions with it are constantly changing. And uh, I really uh, appreciate and respect your demos. Thanks so much for coming on. Where can uh, people find you if they want to reach out to you or uh, follow you?
1: I'm on uh, x.com at Matthew M. Miller, uh, formerly known as Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm more active on LinkedIn. It's a really good place uh, to connect. That's probably the best place. And I'm trying to be more active on LinkedIn and share more things. Uh, I'm trying to take a more active role in the community um, than I already have. So LinkedIn is probably
0: the best. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on. Look forward to seeing you soon.